0: Daniel chapter 1. We're going to read the entire ch- uh, chapter in its entirety. In the, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And place the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called and Ananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has signed your food and your drink, for why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat, water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink, and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every manner of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all of the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Heavenly Father, Lord, we call on you to teach us this morning. Father, we ask you would open up your word to our hearts and open our hearts to your word, in Jesus' name, we pray. Amen, and amen. Well, this morning we begin our study in Daniel, and perhaps Daniel is uh, familiar to many of you. Uh, if it is, it's probably the first six chapters. Uh, the first six chapters, the stories that are in those uh, those chapters with Daniel in the lion's den, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Uh, these are some of the most popular vacation Bible school stories, probably ever, and of course they're uh, popular in Sunday school uh, curriculum, and they're popular in Bible studies. And uh, for many, uh, many have uh, uh, grown up singing the song "Dare to Be a Daniel." Has anyone ever sang that song? "Dare to Be a Daniel." We got a got a couple y- yays, nos. Yeah, has anybody ever heard that? "Dare to Be a Daniel." Uh, that's the message that often folks come with in these stories. But the rest of Daniel is rather elusive. Uh, chapters 7 through 12, I don't know if any of you have tried to uh, make sense of those chapters. They can be uh, quite difficult. So we have material that's very familiar to us. We have other material that's actually quite elusive to us. So I think it's going to be a very exciting study uh, for us. I'm going to resist the temptation this morning to make a long introduction on the, the book of Daniel. I think it's better actually just to in, introduce as you go, especially this morning with so many missing. If you, if you do the entire introduction on the first message and you miss the message, you, you miss the entire introduction. So I'm just going to introduce what's needed to be introduced this morning to do what uh, we're hoping to accomplish this morning, which is this. I want to look at Daniel chapter 1 try to take in the narrative and uh, ask the question, okay, what does this story that took place so many years ago, uh, what does this story have to do uh, with us this morning in 21st century America? Sound fair enough? Okay. Well, let's begin. Verse 1 of our text tells us that in the third year of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, that uh, Nebuchadnezzar came into Jerusalem and besieged it. So what we have here, in essence, is the king of Babylon coming in and taking siege of the king of Jerusalem, right? Easy enough? Okay. What's the significance of that? Well, oftentimes, when you encounter the words Jerusalem and Babylon in the Bible, the Bible, of course, is usually making reference to the actual places, uh, Jerusalem, and Babylon, but often there is this uh, connotation. Uh, These words are often very pregnant uh, with this idea. Um, Babylon, for example, the ESV Study Bible has a note on Isaiah 39.1 that captures this connotation of Babylon. It reads this way, quote, "...in the Bible, Babylon is more than an ancient culture." It represents everything in this world that is humanly impressive, but opposed to God. The idea is here is oftentimes when you're reading through your Bible and you come across the word Babylon, uh, sometimes the word is being used figuratively to actually carry this idea of everything that is humanly impressive, but opposed to God. Sometimes it's just merely pointing to a place. Sometimes it's doing both. In our text this morning, it is doing both. And even in our present culture today, I mean, as, as in 1998, the Rolling Stones uh, did a tour called, I think it was called Back to Babylon. It was their Back to Babylon tour. Now, of course, what is the idea of that? What is being communicated to that? Uh, that which is humanly impressive but opposed to God. Now, of course, some of you would probably uh, beg to differ whether the Rolling Stones are are humanly impressive or not, and I don't want to get into those conversations. I've never been a Rolling Stones fan. I simply point attention to it that even in our present culture, the idea of Babylon uh, carries this whole idea of that which is humanly impressive uh, but opposed to God. And conversely, Jerusalem Oftentimes, when we read and we come across the the, the word Jerusalem, it's making a, uh, it, it's pointing to a place. Sometimes it's being used metaphorically for the people of God, those who are loyal to God, or at least those who ought to be loyal to God. Uh, so we see that Babylon and Jerusalem are are, are carrying these uh, these ideas as we read. Now, what do we have happening here in our text? is that uh, the, the king of Babylon has come and sieged the king of Jerusalem. In other words, the kingdom of the world has come and laid siege to the kingdom of God. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? And this reminds us of a conflict that's been ensuing ever since Adam's rebellion in the, in the garden. We might think, All the way back in Genesis chapter 3.15, which we often make reference as the first gospel presentation. Sometimes you you hear it called the proto-gospel, which reads where God says to to, uh, the serpent, He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. What's God saying here? He's saying there's going to be a conflict. An ongoing conflict between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. Who are the offspring of the serpent? Who are the offspring of the woman? Well, the offspring of the serpent, obviously, is, is the world. Uh, those who are apart from Christ. Who is the offspring of the woman? Uh, those who are in Christ. Also, ultimately, the offspring of the woman is Christ Jesus, right? And all of those who are in Christ Jesus. So here we're told about this conflict that's taking place between the offspring of the devil, the offspring of the woman. In other words, a conflict is taking place between the world and the kingdom of God, the kingdoms of the world, the kingdom of God. And for reading through Genesis, all we've got to do is read through chapter three. As soon as we turn to chapter four, we read about two sons that are born to Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, and we see the conflict right away. Uh, Cain and Abel grow up, Abel is righteous very clearly in the kingdom of God. Cain is not very clearly in the kingdom of the world. Uh, Cain gets jealous of Abel. Cain kills Abel, right? We see that conflict. And as the pages of the Bible begin to unfold, as we go through the story of the Bible, we see that this conflict takes on national. It takes on a national level where we see kingdoms, We see the kingdom of God beginning to unfold. We see the kingdoms of the world, and we see the hostility between uh, the two. And this ongoing conflict uh, between the people of God and the kingdoms of this world is going to be a major theme in Daniel. Uh, Over and over again, we're going to see this uh, in Daniel. Now, in verse 1, we're also introduced to uh, this king who has a really long name. Uh, You want a spelling bee name, Try Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, see if you can spell that one. That would be a good spelling bee, uh, a good spelling be name. Who is this, this Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon? Well, at this period of time, Babylon has uh, risen to be uh, really a superpower. They're, they're well on their way to becoming a superpower. Just a few years, a couple of years before this siege uh, of Jerusalem, uh, Babylon has already Uh, conquered Egypt, which was a rival superpower. And that gave Babylon really control of the Syrian uh, Palestinian land, if you will. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar is no fool. He's actually a very brilliant, very brilliant king. He laid siege to Jerusalem in three stages. First stage is in 605 BC, which is which is what has taken place in our text this morning, that's when Daniel and his three friends are carried off to Babylon in 605. The second siege comes around 597, and the third siege is in 586. So there's these three sieges that take place against where the kingdom of the world comes and lays siege against the kingdom of God. And by the time of the siege in 586 B.C., Jerusalem is destroyed. Uh, the The Babylonians actually go in And they destroy, uh, they just destroy Jerusalem. Now, in verse 1, we're told Nebuchadnezzar seizes Jerusalem. In verse 2, we're told that Nebuchadnezzar plunders the temple of God. If you look at verse 2 with me, do you see that? He takes away some of the sacred vessels that are in the temple and he carries them off to his God. Do you see that? This is very significant. In ancient times... When ancient kings would go and conquer other ancient kings, they would go into their temples and they would raid the temples of the gods of the conquered land and they would carry off all of the goodies and they would put them in their temples of their gods. And what was being said here is this. See, my gods are more powerful than your gods. What's the king of Babylon up to? You say, okay, Judah, you got this king you call Yahweh, you got this king you call Jehovah, you got this king you call the God of Abraham. He's not as strong and as powerful as my God. See, I just waltzed right into the temple and I snatched the goodies and I took them back to our temple and there they are. Our gods are stronger than your gods. So Babylon lays siege against the people of God. He plunders the temple of God. And furthermore, in verses 3 and 6, we're told that Nebuchadnezzar takes the best of Jerusalem's youth. If you look at verses 3 and 4, notice that these youths are from the royal family and of the nobility. They were youths without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, competent to stand in the king's palace. Now, this is no accident. Who are these youths? Nebuchadnezzar is very wise here. Uh, Who does he want? He wants those who are most likely to become leaders. He wants those that are most likely to grow up to be influential. He wants those that are most likely to be trendsetters one of these days. And he gathers them off and brings them into his palace. For what reason? Well, for the reason of beginning beginning an assimilation program. And a simulation program. Look at verse 4. We see his goal. Nebuchadnezzar's goal was to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Now, Chaldea is just another name for Babylon, if you will, and Nebuchadnezzar's plans do not stop with an education. Look down at verse 7. Here we see the chief of the eunuchs giving out new names. Notice that they're renaming these youths. Daniel's new name is Belshazzar. Hananiah's new name is Shadrach. Mishael's new name is Meshach. And Azariah, his new name is Abednego. We have to ask ourselves this question. What in the world is Nebuchadnezzar up to? What's he up to? Reprogramming. That's what he's up to. He's reprogramming. He's reprogramming these youths. He's converting these youths. He wants to raise them up to quit thinking like Israelites. He wants them to grow up thinking like Babylonians. Now, in summary, what do we have happening here? Well, Babylon has come and sieged the city of God. It's plundered the temple of God. He's carried off the children of God. And now he's got this campaign to lead them to turn their backs on God. Do you see all that? So, as a consequence of this, Daniel and his three friends find themselves in a strange new world. In fact, they find themselves in a world that is really completely different from the world that they have known up to this point. And these youths are young. Daniel's probably 17 years old, I would take a guess he's a very young man at this point very very young man so um, he finds himself now in a culture whose value system is completely reversed from what he's grown up the world views are completely incompatible and uh, he is you know the goals of babylon are completely opposite of the goals of the kingdom of god and the question here is how are they to conduct themselves in this strange new world Should they rebel? Should they take their stand? Should they lead a revolt? Should they submit? If they should submit, how far should they submit? Should they surrender? If so, so, how far should they surrender? When should they say enough is enough and and stop and say, okay, we're just not going to go along with this anymore? These are some of the questions that that we need to be asking as we read this book, and, and again, asking the question that I brought up in the introduction, what does all this have to do with us and the 21st century America? Why could I stop and begin to apply this right now? As unbelievers, we are citizens of this world. Uh, we share the world uh, w- the world's views, if you will. We share one of the many world views of this world as citizens of the world. Uh, we share many of the same goals. Uh, we have the same agendas. Uh, we look through things through the world's eyes. But when we come to faith in Christ Jesus, what takes place is we are taken from the world, our citizenship of the world is terminated and we become citizens of heaven. Where at one time we were foreigners of heaven and citizens of the world, as we come to Christ Jesus in faith, we now become foreigners of the world and citizens of heaven. Now, when this happens to you, you find yourself really in many ways in a strange new world, especially if this has happened to you as an, as an adult. I can recall uh, as, uh, as I came to faith in Christ Jesus, I suddenly felt like an outcast in many of my old circles. I just didn't fit in there no more. Uh, the values that were... Uh, uh, that, that, were, uh, that they were clinging to, the values that I once clung to, they were no longer my values. I, I didn't want to go along with that anymore. I, I really felt foreign to uh, all of this. Well, for good reason. Why? Because I'm no longer a citizen of the world. I'm a citizen of heaven. My worldview has changed. My worldview now is centered on Christ's. Prior to coming to faith in Christ, my worldview wasn't centered in Christ. My worldview was centered on myself. I found myself in a strange new world with lots of new questions. Namely, how do I conduct myself in this new world, in this strange world? Should I submit? Should I surrender? Should I rebel? Should I lead a revolution? Should I take a stand? When shouldn't I take a stand? you see the connection? Daniel Daniel is very powerfully speaking to us right now. Uh, in fact, it's timeless. It speaks to, it speaks to all of us, <coughs> wherever, we might, wherever we might be in this fallen world. So, surprisingly, as we look to Daniel... And I say surprisingly, at least to much of the modern evangelical church, Daniel and his three friends, at least in chapter 1, they submit to practically everything, don't they? They submit to it all. Do, do we see any rebellion being led here? No. Do we see any kind of, uh, do, they, do they claim their rights? They say, well, I got my rights. Are they doing that? No. Are they, are they submitting for the most part? Yes. Uh, they're submitting. There'll be times as we go through Daniel where they're going to stop and say, okay, that's enough. I'm not going to go any further than this. And we'll get to those times uh, as we go through in, a, in, the ne- in the next few weeks. We'll see those times. But for now, they're pretty much surrendered to their new leadership with just one resolvement. Daniel has one resolvement. If you look at verse 8, Daniel is resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food. Remember, the use were to get a a portion of the food right off the king's table. Basically, they're, 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 they're going to be dining like kings, actually. And uh, this is where Daniel says, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I'm the, the, no, this is not good. I'm not going to do that. He says, I will not defile me. He's resolved that he will not defile himself. And notice, notice what Daniel does about it. He goes to the officer who is the chief of the eunuchs, and he asks them, he says, listen, uh, could it be possible that I not have to eat this food? And how does the officer respond? Well, the, uh, the officer, he, he's pretty concerned of what Nebuchadnezzar might do to him. And next week when we get to chapter 2, we're going we're gonna to begin to understand what this officer means because we're gonna see just what kind of guy Nebuchadnezzar is and what he's capable of. He would be, I'll just give you a, if you're not familiar with Daniel at all, I'll just give you a foretaste. He'd be a very scary guy to work for. Very scary guy. So the officer, he says, no, 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 no. I don't, I don't, uh, I don't think I wanna do this. Well, Daniel's resolved. Does Daniel give up? No, he doesn't give up. He simply goes down the chain of command. Notice he's not causing any trouble. He simply goes down the chain of command. If you look at verse 11, Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, he said, verse 12, test your servants for 10 days. Just give us vegetables and water, and then let our appearance and the appearance of the others be compared. You know, observe us, uh, compare us here, and uh, see how this works out. of course, this steward says, well, that seems to be reasonable enough. And who knows, that maybe the steward thought, hey, there'd be a couple extra portions laying around for me. And you're not going to eat that? Maybe I'll eat that. Who knows? Either way, uh, the steward is pleased to go along with this. And he takes up Daniel as his request. In verse 15, at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine and they were to drink, and, uh, and the wine that they were to drink, and he gave them vegetables. Now, we need to ask ourselves this question here. Why is Daniel so uh, resolved not to eat this food? And I, I think at the, at, the, at the surface, we're inclined to say, well, Daniel doesn't want to defile himself, and this food probably isn't kosher, so he simply just doesn't want to eat food that's not kosher uh, that's what it seems like on the surface, but I, I, I seriously doubt that's what's going on at all here. Um, was this food offered and consecrated to idols? Most likely, yes. Uh, but Daniel's willing to eat the vegetables. If he wasn't, w- would only the meat have been uh, offered to idols and the vegetables not? Pro- probably not. And besides that, we're not given those details. Uh, so it- it's a bit puzzling, but... I think Sinclair Ferguson is really helpful here. Listen to what he suggests about this. He says that, quote, "...perhaps what Daniel perceived correctly in this food allotment was an effort to seduce him into the lifestyle of a Babylonian through the enjoyment of pleasures he had never before known. High living very easily masters the senses and blunts the sharp-edged commitment of young Christians." Let me read that to you again. Quote, perhaps what Daniel perceived in this food allotment was an effort to seduce him into the lifestyle of a Babylonian. Through the enjoyment of pleasures he had never before known, high living very easily masters the senses and blunts the sharp-edged commitment of young Christians. That's the position I take on this. Because that fits the context, doesn't it? There's an assimilation program taking place here. There is reprogramming taking place here. And boy, nothing will reprogram you like the pleasures of high living. Boy, we like that high living, don't we? We can get used to that high living. We can get used to that uh, very, very easily. Daniel and his three friends here are under intense pressure to conform to Babylon. That's what's taking place here. They're under intense pressure. Um, and a pressure that's not unlike the pressure that m- most of, all, all of our young people today are facing. And not just our youngsters today, but every, all of us. I mean, go through the checkout aisles. What's in every checkout aisle? The lifestyles, the homes, the mansions of the rich and famous. Why are these periodicals in those places? Because they're impulse items. Why, are they, why do people so impulsively grab these things? because we have such a taste for this stuff. We have such a taste for this high living. And, uh, you know, everywhere we're exposed to the lifestyles of the rich and famous, lifestyles that exemplify success, riches, power, glory, without God. God is not in these periodicals, is He? It's not where we go to look for our daily devotion, is it? Not if we're Christians, it's not. But it is if we're Babylonians. I don't mean to be unkind towards America because I love America. I love this country. I don't want to live anywhere else. But I would submit to you that we're living in Babylon. This is Babylon. For the most part, the values of America are not heavenly values. For the most part, the goals of America are not heavenly goals. For the most part, the world view of the average American is not a heavenly world view. And by the standards of most of this world, we're living high on the hog, every one of us. We're living this high life. We're in Babylon. And, And by the way, if you're wondering what the what the title of this message is, the title of this message is Walking Faithfully in Babylon. How do we walk faithfully in Babylon? Well, that's what I want to spend the remainder of our time talking about. Daniel is giving us a number of things here of lessons in walking faithfully in Babylon. Let me give you just a couple of them. Uh, uh, There's more than what I'm going to share with you this morning, but the first one is wisdom. Notice that Daniel is picking his battles. He has the wisdom to know which battle to pick. Uh, There's no cookie cutter lesson here. If we wanted to make a cookie cutter lesson here, then we might come out with the ridiculous notion to say, well, I do it okay. I think I got it. I think I understand what to do. Uh, When you're in Babylon, only eat the vegetables, and you're good to go. Uh, just eat the vegetables. Daniel's in Babylon. When Daniel's in Babylon, he only eats the vegetables. So here, okay, I, g- I agree with you. We're in Babylon. So this afternoon, um, no hamburger. I just, um, uh, I'll just have the, the vegetables. That would be absurd, wouldn't it? That's not the lesson here. The lesson here is wisdom. A couple common proverbs we've probably all heard. How many have heard the, prob- the proverb that one who hesitates is lost? Raise your hand if you've heard that before. One who hesitates is lost. we dating ourselves a little bit. Uh, I heard that all my life. Um, here's another proverb, haste makes waste. How many have heard that one? Okay, these two proverbs are both true, but they're contradictory. One who hesitates is lost. Haste makes waste. Okay, which is it? Wisdom is not a cookie cutter affair. There are times when the best thing to do is to hesitate, not do anything. Tammy and I were looking at cars yesterday. And uh, oftentimes, that's one of those times where haste makes waste. We found a a car that we may go back and buy. Um, I, I think we found a pretty good deal on a car. But I think the proverb that applies here is really haste makes waste. The salesman wants us to believe that one who hesitates is lost. Now, I'm not directing this to the man we spoke to yesterday because he wasn't doing that to us. But oftentimes that's the case. In our lives, there are times when the best thing we can do is hesitate. There are other times when the best thing we can do is move and make a decision right now. So wisdom is knowing when to do the right thing. Daniel is exemplifying, especially for a 17-year-old, He's exemplifying unbelievable wisdom here, really. Uh, you know, Daniel is one of, the only, one of the very few characters in the Bible of which no reprimand is given whatsoever. It's remarkable wisdom that this young man has. Where did it come from? That's the next point. It comes from God's Word. It comes from God's Word. Look with me back to verses 1 and 2 again. We're told that in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now look at verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. You see, Daniel understands something that most of his culture missed. Daniel understood that aside from what it looked like, what did it look like? Well, here comes, here comes Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. What's he doing? Well, he's taking things over. Where, I, I think I've seen him going to the temple. Well, he's in the temple. He's carrying stuff out of the temple. Somebody stop him. A few years later, he comes back with this military campaign. Takes a second wave. A few years later, comes back on the third wave. Just destroys the whole thing. Now we're all being carried off to this strange world. What are we going to be thinking? God, are you not powerful enough to stop this? God, have you abandoned us forever? What's going on? Not Daniel. Daniel realizes what's going on. He realizes that God's hand's in this. He realizes that the only reason that Nebuchadnezzar has any kind of success going on here at all is because God has given it to him. Now, where does Daniel get this insight? Why does Daniel know this? and no one, not, None of the others seem to know this. Why does Daniel know this? It's because Daniel knew the word of God. He knew his Bible. Isaiah had prophesied that this was going to happen just a, f- a number of years earlier. If you're familiar with the story of King Hezekiah, King Hezekiah gets sick. He gets so sick that he's going to die. And Isaiah goes to him and says, Listen, Hezekiah, get your, uh, get your, get your, order, your household in, in order because you're not going to recover from this illness. And Hezekiah prays. So Lord, please uh, spare my life. And the Lord hears his prayer and is pleased to give him 15 more years. And what's Hezekiah do? The next story we have after that is Hezekiah is whining and dining with the Babylonians. We hear this story of these envoys from Babylon coming in, you know. Hey, Hezekiah, we heard you're sick and we were really concerned about you, but now we hear you're doing better and we want to come and just see how you're doing, Hezekiah. You know, how, how are you? You think the Babylonians give a rip about how Hezekiah is doing? They've got ambitions to take over the whole world. This is a perfect opportunity to show up and uh, get a sneak preview of the goodies that are around. What's Hezekiah do? Hezekiah shows them everything. Shows them all of the gold, shows them the whole nine yards. What's Hezekiah doing? He sees that they're, that they're he's, I think he rightfully sees this is the next superpower, and I think I better rub elbows with these guys. He's leaning on them instead of leaning on the Lord. And Isaiah goes to Hezekiah and says this. He says, Hezekiah, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to where? To Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, that some of your own sons will come from you who, whom you will father. They'll be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Daniel knew this, he knew his Bible, he saw these things happening, he understood what was going on, he had insight, he had wisdom, wisdom that come from the word of God, and that leads to a third lesson that Daniel has here, Daniel understood God's faithfulness, he understood God's faithfulness. And this gave him such an advantage. I mean, to walk faithfully in Babylon, you've got to drink deeply of God's faithfulness. Again, imagine being carried off into Babylon thinking God simply was unable to stop the Babylonians. Or that God has, you know what, He's just retracted everything. I'm no longer going to protect you. Yeah, this time you've just blown it, you've gone too far. I'm no longer going to protect, that's just it. Imagine going through it like that. You're going to fall right away. Do people do that today? Absolutely they do. Of course they do. They do. When they fall away, they've already given up on the faithfulness of God. If we're going to walk faithfully in Babylon, we've got to drink deeply of the faithfulness of God. And Daniel understood, listen, God made a promise, and he is faithful to keep it. He'd made a promise of judgment, and that promise came through. And Daniel's a wise young man. God will keep his promises of judgment. Guess what? He keeps his promises of deliverance, too. To walk faithfully in Babylon, we have to drink deeply of the faithfulness of God. As you read your Bible from now on, stop and pause every time you come to a promise. Every time you come to a promise, make a note in your Bible or whatever, however, however you want to do that. Stop at that promise. Look at that promise. Drink up that promise. Count on that promise. And it will empower you to walk faithfully in Babylon. Daniel understood this. Next lesson is Daniel is aware of his identity. Daniel's name is changed, but he hangs on to his identity. He hangs on to it. And, you know, again, we'll talk about this in a couple moments, but Daniel, I mean, if you want to call me Belshazzar, that's fine, but I'm not going to forget the fact that I'm really Daniel. That's really who I am. You want to call me Belshazzar, that's fine, but I'm really Daniel. I'm a servant of the living God. That's who I am. Why is this so important? Because in Babylon, it's easy to lose your identity. Who are we? If you're in Christ Jesus this morning, you're a new creation. You're a son or a daughter of the living God. Do you know how easy it is to forget that? Well, we forget it all the time. Every time we we find ourselves conducting ourselves like worldlings, we have forgotten who we are. And we're not... We're, we're not walking in the true identity of who we really are, are we? Daniel's resolved. You want to call me Belteshazzar? That's, that's fine, you can call me Belteshazzar, but listen, uh, I'm really Daniel. I'm a servant of the living God. And part of walking faithfully in Babylon is remembering who you are. It's remembering who you are. The next lesson, real quick, is tact. And we're going to see as we go through the book of Daniel, Daniel's never a dreadful irritant to his superiors or to anyone around him. He's always courteous, he's always proper, he's always respectful. He's respectful of leadership, he's respectful of the loss. Nothing ever, nothing ever is said of Daniel. Daniel's always, he's always walking uh, really in accord, uh, in, in properness, if you will. Uh, there's times where Daniel's going to take a stand, and we'll get to those when we do, but for even then, he is still very proper... And in conclusion, I'll leave you with this last one. If our conclusion of this material, as I said at the beginning, if our conclusion of chapter 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 is dared to be a Daniel, we're missing the whole thing here. We're missing the whole thing. Now, let me qualify that. Let's allow, as you study the life of Daniel, what... Daniel is a very influential young man who grows up to be a very influential old man. By all means, let's let him influence us. Let's allow him to inspire us to want to be like Daniel. But let's go further than that. Let's allow Daniel to inspire us to be like the one who is even greater than Daniel, who is Christ Jesus. Daniel's a great man, but there was... There's one who comes after Daniel, who's much greater than Daniel. What's really the point of chapter 1? Is God's sovereign control and his faithfulness. Daniel is resolved not to defile himself. And God miraculously blesses him in that resolvement. How does he maintain the same physique with vegetables and water as his classmates maintain eating the king's food? How does that happen? And consequently, Daniel applies himself to, his under, to, to learning. I think in, in the evangelical church today, I, think, I, don't think, I don't think today, the way we think, I don't think we would have cared about the food. In fact, I think most of us would have said, hey, this food looks really good. I think we would have went for the food. You want to know what I think we would have took our stand on? Was the education. We said, no, I'm not studying those pagan books. I'm not filling my head with all that pagan literature. I'm not filling my head with all that stuff. Interestingly enough, David, Daniel doesn't, he graduates top of his class. Not only does he study that stuff, he, he graduates top of his class. It's much differently we think than Daniel. Well, in conclusion, just as Nebuchadnezzar's agenda is to make us Babylonians, guess what? The culture around us, its agenda is to make us Babylonians. But we need to remember this. What is God's agenda for us? God's agenda for us is to make us like Jesus. Amen? Heavenly Father, we thank you, O Lord, for this, this chapter, this wonderful chapter we have, this leaf from the life of Daniel. And most importantly, Father, we see that Daniel is one of the leading characters, but Father, the leading character here is clearly you and your faithfulness, your sovereign control. Oh, Father, we thank you that, Lord, we have these lessons. How do we walk in Babylon? You've given us so many things to digest this morning, so many things to, uh, to study and ponder. Uh, may we drink deeply of your faithfulness, oh, Father. May we seek wisdom in your word. May we remember who we are. May we be tactful, O Father. We pray, O Lord, that you would do these things in us, but may we always remember that we are not Daniels. We simply are not Daniels, nor are we Daniel's three friends. But, O Father, we look to he who is greater than Daniel, and we ask, O Lord, that you would give us, give us this faithfulness that we see in Daniel's life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Why do you stand? as